and Brad or Ben Affleck and uh, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer, An- yeah, Jennifer yep. Lopez Benifer. are uh, a thing again. Yep. What is old is new. Yeah. <laughs> Ronald Reagan's come back from the grave to run for president. <laughs> oh, he's just a head in a jar, you say? <laughs> Oh man, that's one of my favorite like bits from Futurama. It's like the Nixon head in a jar thing. Yeah. Yep. It's like of all the US presidents to preserve, I love that they preserved Nixon. Right, yeah. Uh, I think they didn't have to worry about offending too many people by going after him. I think he might have even been dead when they started it. I can't remember when Nixon Oh yeah. Didn't he die in the nineties? Let's see. Yeah, 94. Yeah, 94. So, oh, Richard Nixon never got to watch Color of Night. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe that was what killed him. Who knows? Too exciting. One, two, three, hit it, boys! Uh. (laughs) Get together, have a few laughs. Uh-oh, shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Lady, put the freaking gun down on the ground right now. Take your shot across the freaking street and say that until we get you. Hello and welcome to Where There's a Willis, There's a Way, a film podcast about the multitude of works by Bruce Willis. My name is Josh Carter. And I'm Kendrick Martin. Today, we will be covering 1994's Nobody's Fool, not the 2018 Nobody's Fool, just, uh, you know, note to self. Nobody's Fool, directed by Robert Benton, written by Richard Russo and Robert Benton. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, what we do here is an in-depth breakdown of a movie starring Bruce Willis, both from the film perspective and his individual contribution. We add the movie to our rankings, talk trivia, and do The Wheel of Willis. You can find all of our previous episodes at williswaypod.com. You can find other podcasts in the Last of the Action Heroes podcast network over at lastoftheactionheroes.com. Please, 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 if you can, um, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It takes a couple of minutes to sign up. You send Apple your email address, and then they will presumably not send you anything that you don't need. Um, but we live in the modern era, so obviously not. And then you can rate and review us. I think they send it's you apples, actually. <laughs> they do? <Yeah. laughs> At least oh, that's what's okay. been happening to me. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I'd like to sign up for an apple subscription, please. And they're like, what flavor? You're like, green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then they send you that. You get a green so. iPod uh, mini every, yeah. every week. <laughs> uh, speaking of something you said a few minutes ago, did you know... Just today, I believe, as we're, as of we're recording this, the Last of the Action Heroes Podcast Network added a new member. It, oh, right. They added, um, was it a Seagal? It was. A Steven Seagal podcast. This podcast is called Hard for Justice. Hard for Justice. So that's exciting. I have like a handful of Steven Seagal movies that I've seen re- repeatedly, but I can't say that I know his library very well uh so i'm interested to see if they um give me to watch some of his other stuff he he did uh he's had like a pretty eclectic career if i recall also 
news about the Action Hero Podcast Network. We're, we got some cool projects in the works over there, so stay tuned for that stuff coming up. But before we dive into talking about this movie, Nobody's Fool, uh, we first want to give you an idea if we think this movie is worth watching. So we're going to break down the movie in depth here in a little bit, but first we want to let you know if you should stop it now and go watch the movie or feel like you can skip this one and come back uh, to a different one later. So Josh, what do you think about this movie? What do you think about Nobody's Fool? I I, uh, peeked ahead and I knew that the Rotten Tomatoes rating was positive, which after a couple of uh, 22 percenters, with um, Color of Night and North, I was looking forward to. And I think that, by and large, this movie does earn that fairly high Rotten Tomatoes score. As I said before, Rotten Tomatoes is like a review aggregate. So they take reviews and they just look at, did this person like it or did they not? So a 100% of Rotten Tomatoes does not mean that every single person gave it a 10 out of 10. It means that 100% of the critics that they pulled reviews from said, yeah, I recommend this movie. So, obviously, by saying that this movie is a 91%, I'm not saying that it's a 9.1, but I think it's a pretty good movie. I think it's worth a watch. Um, I am going to give it a Bruce Will with one L. I agree with you. Um, funny, you, you mentioned Rotten Tomatoes. I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but classically... Uh, Citizen Kane maintained the best Rotten Tomato score because uh, it's that movie that everyone who's ever been to a film studies class feels like they have to say they loved. But just recently, Rotten Tomatoes updated its score based on a review that it found uh, contemporary to Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane, so not a new review, uh, which bumped it yeah, down. Not somebody just looking for clout yeah, or something. Yeah, it bumped it down, and now Paddington uh, is the number one movie on there. I think it's Paddington too. It it should be. That's definitely the better it of Paddington it's that's too. the better of the Paddingtons in my opinion, although I, I enjoy both. But uh Rotten Tomatoes is the gold standard and should never be argued with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Much like our Bruce Willis rating yeah. system. So flawless. <laughs> you gave it a Bruce Will with one L, which means pe- yeah. you definitely think people should watch this movie. I think I'm gonna give it a Bruce Wee. Bruce W.I. Yeah. I think it's good. I think it's worth watching. Um, But we can get into the nitty-gritty details here in a little bit. The nitty-gritty titty details. Ooh. I see what you did there. (laughs) Spicy. And we could talk about how this movie is a sequel to Bonfire of the Vanities. (laughs) But before we do that, we got some emails to read. Uh, This email comes in from Anonymous, our favorite uh, correction email source. Yeah. And to be fair, this is an anonymous email. This is not from the group, the hacker activist group, Anonymous. I mean, it could be, really. Like, they could could be hanging out in 4chan or some, whatever the modern day equivalent of 4chan is, being like... Well, we want to hack into... 5chan. Yeah, we want to hack into Reddit and or listen to Bruce Willis podcasts. So those go hand in hand. I could see that. This email is a correction for Pulp Fiction. 
And it says, it wasn't Rosanna. Arquette, who was in the scene with Tim Roth. Rosanna was in the drug house. That's all. I realized this after we had recorded this episode, and I forgot to ever bring it up again. So thank you for that correction. We always appreciate corrections. It means that people are listening actively, not just doop de doop de doop I am playing it so that it gets a play. Have you ever... So, have, we love stuff like that. Josh, are you a... Uh, do you like... Do you grow plants? Or are you a gardener or anything like that? Um... No, there's a no, not really. There's there's a um, piece of wisdom that says that when you're growing house plants in particular, you should play music for them. So a lot of times, if people are people are trying to grow, you know, a plant indoors, and you look online or whatever, and you're like, "Why won't my plant grow?" or "Why is my plant looking sad?" Uh, one of the answers is like, play music for it, so you can play jazz or or whatever, and. I don't know what science has to say about this, but it's an option. I, I'm now wondering, what if people played this podcast for their plants? That's a good question. You know, the only way to really discover what would happen is to actually try it out. So if everybody could go play this on their speakerphones um, for their plants, that would be cool. And uh, listeners, if you're doing that, could you please also create a separate Apple account for your plants to rate us on? Yeah. Although, would plants rating stuff on apple.com be like a conflict of interest because they're all plant-based or Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. That's not like dirty politics or anything like that. No, I mean unless there there's like a secret plant hierarchy that we're unaware of where every plant is vying for its own space on earth. But I think that's just humans. Did you just say I think where that's every just plant humans. is vine for its own place. <laughs> vining? Yeah, every plant is vining. Oh man. Do you think uh these plants would prefer it if we created a Vine account. Are Vine accounts still a thing? I I don't know. Maybe I could go to like the the Wayback Machine and then use the archived version of Vine, but I don't know that it would let me create anything new. I think mm. it's just like an archived version of the page, so it would just be frozen. Frozen in time and space. So what you're saying is I should create a TikTok pretending like I'm on Vine talking as a plant. <laughs> Two other yes. plants. Yes, please do that. Okay. Yep. Oh man, I I like lost where we were at because I'm now thinking about you as a plant. <laughs> if you ever want to send us an email, you can send us an email at williswaypod at gmail com. And really, who doesn't want to send us an email? We're so nice to everybody that emails us. We send everybody that emails us a five dollar gift card to nowhere's land um so yeah sign up now because that promotion won't last forever everybody who emails us Uh, gets a free reading of their email yeah (laughs) except for that one joke email that we got sent in and we're like nope (laughs) and you know who you are (laughs) yeah (laughs) um also if you want to follow us on twitter you can find us at willis way pod also if you are on the uh the other blue social networking website you can follow the last of the action heroes podcast network facebook page for updates on stuff that our sister groups our brother groups our sibling groups 
our affiliated network groups are uh, are up to. Also, I wanted to give like a brief little shout out. Um, a I'm doing a film class right now, and one of my classmates recommended the film podcast "Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood," and it's a a look at a bunch of different films, specifically from a black film goer's perspective and i think that it is really great i listened to one of their episodes today it is also not suitable for work so if you're listening to it around your great-grandmother maybe don't do that but it's good stuff i i really liked their episode that they did in uh december on um guess who's coming to dinner so i can recommend that one in specific and i'm sure that their other stuff is great too so yeah just wanted to give them a little shout out I like how you assume that so, I'm working with my great grandma. Yeah, I mean, who isn't like just side by side with their great grandmother in like a four generational household? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely how most Americans operate. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we're going to get into the film 1994's Nobody's Fool. Paramount Pictures presents Paul Newman. How about you and me go out there and get ourselves naked and then just see what happens? Okay. 60 years old and still getting crushes on other men's wives. I would hope by the time I'm your age, I'm a little smarter than that. Can't hurt to hope. Sure off to a slow start. In a movie you can count on. I could legally shoot you and get away with it. To surprise you at every turn. Not unless I'm breaking an enter. Are you going to break an enter? <laughs> Does it ever bother you that you haven't done more with the life God gave you? Not often. Now then. Nobody's fool. That audio was from the trailer of Nobody's Fool. I'm going to read the description from IMDb. A stubborn man past his prime reflects on his life of strict independence and seeks more for himself. This movie stars Paul Newman, Bruce Willis, and Jessica Tandy. You can find this movie on Canopy, a library streaming service, unrelated to the one that we used last week. I think it was Hoopla. Hoopla, yeah. Hoopla. And obviously, VOD. So, I didn't... uh, It's hard to tell because I try to avoid spoiling myself. It's hard to tell the percentage of a film that Bruce Willis is going to be in though. If he's on the cover, I can usually assume he's the main actor, but in a movie with Paul Newman, it wasn't clear of how much of a role Bruce Willis was going to play in this movie. Mm -hmm. So surprise, surprise, he doesn't have a very big role in it and we'll, we'll discuss him more later, but this movie is definitely a Paul Newman film. I don't think, there's a scene in this movie that he's not in uh, or at least like adjacent to the, the scene of that movie. Um, <clears throat> so Paul Newman, classic actor. Um, my personal experience with Paul Newman is I had seen a handful of his stuff when I was younger. I'm thinking of uh, Cool Hand Luke particularly. I often in my mind get him confused with Marlon Brando because they look similarly. And I had just recently watched uh, 
a handful of Marlon Brando films on the waterfront and Wild Hogs, I believe the other one was. And they have they ha- they have a, a very similar look to them. Um, and actually, I was I was watching this movie and I was like, man, he looks like Marlon Brando. That's really weird. And then I was like, well, I guess they're you know they work together, um, so they probably would have grown up in acting together. And then I uh, was. Uh, amused to see that in Roger Ebert's review of this movie, Nobody's Fool, uh, he compares Paul Newman to Marlon Brando. He says, quote, at the center is Paul Newman. He's an exact contemporary of Marlon Brando, who is said to have invented modern film acting. Yes, and he probably did, stripping it of the mannerisms of the past and creating a hypercharged realism. Like Brando, Newman studied the method like Brando, Newman looks good in an undershirt. Unlike Brando, Newman on went on to study life, and so while Brandon broke through and then wandered aimlessly in inexplicable roles, Newman continued to work on his craft, end quote. So I haven't seen a Paul Newman movie in a long time, and I definitely don't think I've ever seen a Paul Newman movie of an older Paul Newman. Uh, and I thought he was great in this movie. What's your experience with Paul Newman, Josh? It's pretty minimal, so I know of Paul Newman because I am a person that's interested in film, but I hadn't really ever watched any of his movies. I know that he was in Cars because it was a big deal to a lot of people who were in my parents' generation that watched that movie. They're like, oh, Paul Newman voices the old racer character Doc Hudson, and he's great in that that movie as well. Um Although in this, getting to actually see him act in person, I think was just really, really great. He gives just such a good performance throughout this movie. He kind of takes what could be just a really run-of-the-mill sort of book adaptation that's kind of paint-by-numbers. And he provides so much truth to this character, so much realism to it that it was just mesmerizing to watch. I was so impressed by his performance. In this yeah. Movie. And what I found really compelling about this movie. And also I thought to me was one of the negatives was this movie at its heart is a story of, uh, men struggling in their relationships with one another, struggling to relate to one another. So we have Paul Newman mm-hmm. playing his character and the movie has him meeting his kind of estranged adult son and working through their relationship of him not being around ever when his son was growing up. But then he's also a a grandfather to this little kid, his, uh, his son's son. And then you have his relationship with his also his other construction workers. You have his relationship with the Bruce Willis character. Who's ostensibly his boss. You have his relationship with the guy who works at the bank, who is kind of like the financial, only like financial businessman person we see. And I thought it was really fascinating to look at. And there's even a line, I think it's in the trailer, but near the end where Paul Newman goes like, I just realized that I'm a dad and a grandfather and maybe even someone's friend. And I felt like, it was a little too on the nose, but also didn't want it to admit to itself that it was a movie about real male relationships. I think, especially in that time, to me, there's not a lot of great examples in Hollywood of male friendship relationships that aren't action hero movies where they're like fighting alongside one another and cracking wise and then 
maybe having like 30 seconds of heart to heart. This movie, obviously not at all an action movie. And, uh, but there's that, there's that true emotional male relationship. You know, there's even a scene where a guy cries. Um, and I, I wanted to see that complexity come out a little more because there's like an undercurrent of tension with some of the competing relationships there. So his friend feels, um, his friend feels threatened by his son who shows up because now Paul Newman suddenly has someone else to, to be around. And his son feels threatened by his grandson because he's now being the father that he never had. And they kind of like mention that in one line and then it never gets really brought up again. And I've, I'm like, this is the heart of this movie to me. And I wish that it had spent more time there. Yeah. I think that you're right that it didn't quite know what, what it wanted to be fully and what, what its uh, heart was going to be. And if it had been able to pinpoint that, I think that it would have had a more precise message to leave with us. Um, yeah. And I think also, I, I can't remember if you specifically mentioned this, but obviously it's about male relationships, but I think it's also about like guys learning to accept that they can't do everything on their own. And he plays like a I don't want any help sort of guy and then by the end of the movie he's working more cooperatively with other people and stuff like that and I think that that was that was a part of the movie where it felt like maybe maybe they understood it a little bit more and they knew kind of what mm. to do with it but the the relationship aspect I don't think that they did know what exactly they were doing with it yeah it it seems like it wanted to focus more on the personal growth elements so Paul Newman admits that he was a terrible father and he fled his wife and practically newborn. I don't think, I don't think his son was very old when he left. And I think they say like he was one or something. And, but in this movie we see him doing odd jobs and also helping people essentially for free across the whole town. And so I, I get the feeling that even though I think he's hard up for money and he's definitely doing some of it for money, he's also like shoveling people's driveways uh, and he's helping out at the diner and he's helping the little old lady who wanders out into the street. So he's definitely now like almost the uh, example of responsibility versus Mm -hmm. ditching your kid when he's one and never coming back again. So, and then comparing that to the Bruce Willis character, who is very irresponsible, even when given some new opportunities, I th- I think that's kind of where I wanted to to linger was here's a story of a guy who kind of like regretted, learned his lessons, suffered. Paul Newman is definitely in bad shape in this movie. He starts the movie uh, with a construction accident and has a limp almost the entire movie. And so he's definitely not doing well off for having shirked his relationships and are now like taking care of the town. He's, he still has a lot to, to struggle with, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And we haven't really mentioned it yet either, but obviously Paul Newman is supported by a just super stacked cast. Oh yeah. This cast is stacked. So, yeah. It's crazy. So there's Melanie Griffith in it. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it. Character actress Margot um, Martindale is in it. Oh, yes. 
famous to me for uh, Bojack Horseman. Yeah. For the role of Margot Martindale. I can't ever not say Margot Martindale without saying character actress Margot Martindale. Uh, <laughs> because in if you've never seen Bojack Horseman, she plays herself in that. But they always have to reference her as that every time she's on screen. That's what another character calls yeah. her. And it's just a running joke for that whole show, which is great. Um, it's so good. But this actually, so I looked this up and... I only really started to get to know her probably in the last like 10 years, specifically her run. Oh, yeah. Her run on uh, various like network or cable TV shows. Um, the Americans being probably my favorite of the ones she's done. But um, this movie came out in 94, was near the beginning of her career, which is why I think she's um, not really given a lot of casting credit although she she plays the bartender and i thought her like deadpan bartender character was great uh really i mean for as little of a role as she played i like loved seeing her um same with philip seymour hoffman he had been in a couple things a couple of notable things before this thinking specifically scent of a woman um, that i'm familiar Mm with and he plays the perfect uh swarmy like punchable cop in this even though i kind of sympathize with him because uh his he doesn't seem to be doing a bad job like paul newman is definitely kind of shirking his responsibility he's not paying his parking tickets he's not taking care of his cars uh but man yeah philip seymour hoffman is just like the complete punchable guy in this oh yes yeah extremely punchable extremely (laughs) so (laughs) i i love seeing philip seymour hoffman as just like a super 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 annoying person i think that that's a it's enjoyable it's a good role for him and i am so sad that he is no longer with us because like he is great in um in this movie in the hunger games he is the best person in that movie that series of movies by basically by far um although stanley tucci's in it so maybe maybe stanley tucci could sure it's not mark strong opinion. yeah mark's uh, god damn it <laughs> is uh, it mark strong no it is stanley tucci right <laughs> i don't know um you're the hunger and he's in uh you're the hunger mission games impossible Master. three yeah that's actually i think might be my favorite mission impossible because of his performance yeah I, we should talk about Mission Impossible at some point, too, because I, I have a lot of thoughts on those movies, and everybody seems to treat them as kind of like disposable, like fun movies, and I'm like, no, they're, oh, no, they're I, really good, I think. Uh, Sans Mission Impossible 2, I love them all. Yeah, I haven't seen the second one yet, so I need to watch it, and then uh, maybe we can that's the have least. a discussion. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about There's a new one coming out, so maybe we'll... Uh, Mission Impossible 7, I believe, is coming out this year. Yeah, sounds right. Um, it's interesting now that I'm, I'm thinking about this Philip Seymour Hoffman has a very similar to Bruce Willis effect where a lot of his movies he can do a, like a, a freak out moment almost where he just kind of goes bananas and his energy goes to 11 and mm. like he's notable for being kind of like straight face and then suddenly like going off on something uh and I like that's kind of our some of the favorite moments of Bruce Willis for us is when he does that too. And I'm I'm now like kind of thinking, oh, they have that similar 
like ability to really explode with energy. Yeah. Yep. I would say that that's definitely And then true. the other major uh, character in this actor is Melanie Griffith, which is how we, I claim that it's, I will stick by this claim that it's a sequel to Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, yeah. Because it seems fairly straightforward. Bruce Willis marries Melanie Griffith and they move to upstate New York. And he decides... Do they even have any scenes together? He decides his millions of dollars is for chumps and he's going to start a construction company. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, th- I, uh, I, I don't know about that one, but we can, we can you know, submit it to the uh, review board and then they'll get a decision yeah. back to us. I'm My sure. Bruce Willis Connected Universe Expanded Timeline is uh, all coming together. I, I uh, liked I Melanie Griffith's character in this, her performance. Her hair was very different than what I'm used to seeing her as, and so I was kind of like, wow, what's going on with her hair? And I don't know if maybe it's a wig or she just had a different hairstyle or what, but I find that was kind of distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's a kind of running through line in this movie that she and... Paul Newman's character flirt constantly. They are very different in age. (laughs) They are very different in age. (laughs) Yeah. So I looked it up and Melanie Griffith would have been about 36 when they were filming that movie. And Paul Newman would have been about 68. Yeah. So So I don't, I mean, it's kind of cute for most of the movie because he seems like a nice guy and obviously kind of a friend and like the flirting seems fairly benign uh, mm-hmm. until she flashes him at one scene. And then I'm like, Whoa, yeah. uh, that was, would have been weird in real life. And then at the end of the movie, the movie ends with her proposing that they run away to Hawaii together. And, yeah. and Paul Newman at first is like, okay. And then he's like, well, I got a family now and responsibilities. Um, but like, which so- is funny because he's like, I I can't leave. Which I would get if he was like a dad who had like young kids, but he's got a kid who's got a kid, so like he's not in charge of them at all. Yeah, and really, so I wasn't. He his yeah. kids de- uh, separated and unemployed, so just bring them all to Hawaii. They're in freaking cold North Bath, New York. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I did not really understand like what his character was about. I got that he had to say no for the movie, right? But I didn't really get why his character was doing that. So yeah, it was kind of confusing. He really sold it, but I did. I, I, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I thought he they were actually gonna go to Hawaii. I was convinced. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah, the other thing that I was gonna mention too about the like stackedness of this movie is that. It is directed by a director who we have already seen. So he's the second director that has directed two works of this Bruce Willis bunch that we've covered. Um, he's joining. I believe it, the guy's name is on a different page. The guy's <laughs> name is Blake Edwards. There we go. Uh, yeah, nope. So Robert Benton is who you're thinking of? No, 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 no. So uh, Blake Edwards uh, did oh, Blind Date and Sunset, and then Robert Benton is now joining him. I because, see uh, Robert what Benton. You're yeah, I know. I did the I did the long way around. I took a took a UE and went up on the the five, and then took the <laughs> two hundred five back down. Yeah. So um, Robert Benton is now joining uh, Blake Edwards because 
Robert Benton did one of our favorite movies, Billy Bathgate, and then turned around and did this one, which we both gave like a much higher review. I cannot wait to see how far apart they are in our lists. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I was it was interesting seeing that there was somebody that we'd already seen before, and then Howard Shore did the music for this, and I don't think it was like his first time doing a musical score for something, but it. His music was uh, very distinct in this movie, I found. Um, but still, a very talented composer, obviously. So there's a lot of talent going into this movie. And then yet they still somehow kind of figured out a way to, to make it on what is a, a shoestring budget for kind of a, a, a bigger movie as far as the amount of talent that they had in it. So I was, I was just very impressed watching the opening credits and going, oh my goodness, who's in this movie? Who worked on this movie? Did you notice that you had a similar experience or were you like, oh, that makes sense? So I have a, cu- a couple a couple responses here. First of all, Billy Bathgate, definitely not one of my favorite movies. Near, near the bottom <laughs> of my list. So just, just so we're clear. Uh, I don't want any Billy Bathgate uh, stands to suddenly think I'm backing them. Yeah. Um, also, about the music... I thought it it was fine, except at the end, I think it was the final scene. It started with the f- the flutes, and I was like, "What are we doing? The Titanic here right now? What is going on?" It was just like, no, "Oh, no, you didn't like that? No, not at all." It was like, "I'm like, why why do we have these flutes? Like, what is James Cameron That's... gonna pop his face in here and talk about diamonds under the sea? Come on." <laughs> That is so interesting because that was like one of my favorite parts of the soundtrack. Like I made a specific note that I love the the wind instruments there. Wow. I mean, to be fair, um, Titanic came out what, five years after this, so yeah. I, I'm not. I don't seriously think that there was a Titanic homage, but maybe Titanic <laughs> has just ruined flutes for me because. Yeah. I now just think of Celine Dion whenever I hear flutes playing, and I was just like, wow, this is very distracting. I cannot pay attention to anything else. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. The thing that didn't work for me with the soundtrack was some of the soundtrack has like nice orchestral score behind it, and I, I really like those, those bits. And then other parts of it, it's like really synth-heavy, and I was going, mm-mm, mm-mm, not a fan, not a fan of this. It's taking me out of the movie every time, because I'm like, ah, oh, there's synths again mm, so much synths. they should have called this movie the synth sense oh cosmic synth cosmic synth <laughs> synth set mm. i'm trying to think of other <laughs> hud synth hawk <laughs> bonfire oh. of the synth nope that is okay um i one thing I really liked about this movie was it's uh, on-location filming, and it was filmed in New York. Um, the town of North Bath is a is a made-up town, but it was filmed uh, in in upstate New York, and it was actually um, in the town of Hudson Valley. Uh, Ooh. The famed Hudson? Yeah, which I was like, here's my Hudson Hawk connection, baby! Uh, But yeah, it's based on the city of Ballston Spa, which I think is... um, I think the city of North Bath is is the same in the book. 
uh, but it's based on the city of Balston Spa. Uh, hmm. uh, I uh, when I was watching this, I was like, just constantly thinking to myself, "Oh my god, I don't want to live in a small town. I don't want to live in a small town. I don't want to live in a small wow. town." All of this looks like miserable. I love living in a city big enough to where if there's somebody that I don't want to see again, it is totally possible to do that. I don't ever have to think about them or see them ever again. I mean, to be fair, that was uh, true for this movie because or for this town true. because they even mention he's he's like, "How come you do you ever see mom?" and and, he, and Paul Newman goes, "No, we run in different social circles." So this town is small. I don't know if we're ever told how big the town of, of uh, North Bath is. One of the things I loved about this movie, though, is there's almost no extras, very few extras. And so it mm-hmm. gives the uh, characters on screen so much more of importance because the town doesn't ever feel deserted. But everybody on screen is someone you know and recognize because you've kind of already met them. And it feels very lived in. And I yeah. thought that effect really worked on me. I don't mind the small town aspect i don't think i i mean i definitely wouldn't want to live there but one thing i i immediately was like i don't want to live with this much snow oh yeah well apparently they were not anticipating it to snow that much and it was like a really really bad snow year but they were going well okay i guess we work with it and then proceeded onward but yeah it was apparently like a unheard of amount of snow for that time and that location and then they they made it work but it it seemed so snowy like everywhere they were going there was snow down <laughs> that's snow joke that's no joke all right folks that's it tune in next week when we cover die hard with a vengeance see you later is that your north bath accent that's my North Bath accent. Hey, I'm from New York. Um, anyways. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I guess the one thing that made me feel like the town was itty bitty, tiny, tiny, tiny town was the fact that, um, that one character whose name I thought was Rob, but apparently it's Rub. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so, so Rub fucking rub was talking about i was like i wish that there was you know a a business that would move in here and then we could all go work for the business work inside because they were like currently working in a house that was a derelict housing piece of piece of house and uh yeah i was like wow that town is so tiny so tiny um speaking of weird names the i believe it's the uh lawyer his name is Worf W I R F oh yeah well the kids the that one kid's name is actually Wacker yeah uh <laughs> let's talk about the kids for a second so Paul Newman uh, reconnects with his son and his son is married and has two kids which it's never explained but are they twins cuz they look so close in age i don't think that they are but i have no idea so one kid is named will and the other kid is named wacker and then of course paul <laughs> newman goes why is your name wacker and then he goes kabam right in the right in the, <laughs> the lame knee and uh i was like wow this kid is a nightmare um 
And it was definitely, it was, that was, I was like, this is like a, a goofus and gallant from that old comic strip moment here where oh, one, yeah. one kid is just the absolute worst and the other one is like the greatest, greatest kid you've ever taken care of. Yep. Um, yeah, we should talk about the kids for a hot second because the kid that is in most of this movie, um, Will, is like, I don't know if the kid is just A, a bad actor, but reading fine dialogue, or B, is a bad actor reading bad dialogue, or is a good actor making the worst of some bad dialogue. Or did I say that one already? Uh, Whatever. I don't know. Good question. He's only in Take- six movies between 94 and 98. So Yeah, and he, he like won a Young Actors Award or was nominated for a Young Actors Award for a different movie. But there's a scene in this where he's like, this is how my domestic relationship works with my parents. My mom and dad fight about money and finances oh, in our yeah. apartment. Someday I would love to move out of my two-bedroom apartment. And he just like goes on and on and on. And I was like, what the fuck is this kid? Yeah. Nobody talks like that. It's like he, it's like he watched a self-help on how to get out of your troubled parents' relationship. And it's like, okay, yeah. I will do step one. How many bedrooms does my apartment have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was that was atrocious. And then there was another scene or two where the kid was in where I was fine with him and then he would go off on like another thing again and it's just like, oh my goodness, get this out of here. Oh, and then the kid also is going like, well, my parents will get divorced and then my mom will take Whacker and then my dad will take me and I'll live with my dad and then Whacker will live with my mom. And I was like, that's not how divorces work except for in like um, the uh, uh, not Freaky Friday. What's the the movie with Lindsay Lohan that's a remake of that other movie? Uh, parent Trap. It's not the Parent Trap. They don't just split twins apart and then like, well, that's your entire life now. <laughs> you just don't get to know your other parent at all. That's not how that works at all. Man. And then and then it does. <laughs> yeah. I um. I yeah, I was just like I felt like it was such shallow, needless uh, like covering up of plot holes to kind of be like, well, we got two kids, one good kid, one bad kid, and the mom obviously is blind to the stuff the bad kid does. So they'll just shuffle off off stage right and <laughs> leave uh, more room for other characters, which is then like why would you add them into the movie if you're just going to dispose of them yeah. right away? I mean, we didn't need, I don't know. We could have just done it without the Whacker kid entirely, I suppose. But it was nice to give the kid a little bit of kind of like shared suffering that the, um, you know, his family could relate to, I suppose. But I didn't mm-hmm. think it, it helped at all. Yeah. Yeah. This movie is overly long in segments of it. And it's uh, based on a book. And I think that it kind of has the in-country problem, which I am now going to refer to as book chapters that result in non-sequitur moments-itis. Wow. Um, It's uh, succinct and descriptive. Yes, exactly. Um, So there's a lot of parts of this movie that's just like, and then... Uh, Paul Newman's character Sully helps out this person and then 
he ends the chapter, but it's a movie, so we got to keep going. And then they kind of transition to like another thing that he's doing, and then it feels like the end of a chapter, and then it's a movie, so it's got to keep going. It's got to interlock everything, and you're like, this is so jarring. I'm feeling like I'm constantly watching a movie start and stop. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. With that said, I do find that the movie worked pretty decently i'm obviously complaining about some stuff but i think that the the heart and the soul of the movie is a it's a good one and paul newman is obviously doing such a great job and i think that when the movie is firing on all cylinders it's really quite a joy to watch there are just a lot of things that really stand out to me and maybe it's because i've watched so many movies (laughs) just recently and I've critiqued a lot of them, and so then I'm in that mindset, but it was just impossible for me to escape the this is based on a book mindset yeah. that I got into within like the first 10 minutes or whatever. Totally agree. I think the uh, performance Paul Newman puts in well outweighs any of the negative stuff I put in to recommend this to people. And I thought yeah. even even with all the complaints that I have, the inner character relationships between him and all the people around him were such a joy and all their... Um, all the bits worked. He's constantly stealing Bruce Willis's snowplow, and it, <laughs> like they up the the stakes every time. And it's yeah. it's that I thought that was funny. Uh, that part, yep, I, that was humorous. We, Dobermans were brought back in as the bad guard dog again for this movie. Yep. Yeah, they only had a few movies off because it was last in uh, Death Becomes Her, and then took a few movies break and then they're they're back in as the bad guys again so Mm -hmm. it got added to my letterbox list about dobermans actually being very sweet and Mm. yeah uh, this movie did have did have some non-attacking doberman moments i thought whereas was nice yep yeah although it can be argued that the dog at that point is then like worthless because yeah he's only bred to be like an attack dog and like will he attack like at random so i as somebody that has spent a lot of time around dogs i feel pretty strongly that if your dog is a dog that is trained to attack rehabilitating it for a regular home life even if you are 95 percent sure that it's not ever going to get get um something that triggers it and kind of flips it out it that 5% could be the difference between somebody losing a finger, losing part of their face. So I am of the opinion that dogs that are like that need to go to specific homes that are built to handle those, or you need to make the decision that's going to result in the preservation of um, human life. And so, yeah, it's I, I've, I've got a lot of feelings about about specifically aggressive dogs. I don't think most dogs are aggressive, but you do have some every once in a while. And I believe that this asshole of a Bruce Willis character would train his dog just to be 100% aggressive. And I think what you're saying is, is that, uh, they need to get sent to a farm in North Bath, New York. Yes. They need to be sent to a farm. Um, one thing I want to talk about here before we wrap this part of the podcast up one last bit, there's a running, uh, plot in this movie of 
a character who's trying to get people to buy up land for a amusement park that's coming. And this amusement park is going to, you know, buy all the land from people. And so he's trying to drive up real estate prices and get people to sell their money to this real estate company. And then it kind of falls through. That plot didn't really work for me. And it was kind of a strange, a, a strange aside, but it did remind me of there's a, there's an amusement park in uh, New Jersey, I believe, called Action Park. Have you ever heard of this oh, amusement yeah. park? Is that the one that was like really famous in the 90s for all those injuries? Yeah, so there's a documentary on HBO called Class Action Park. And I've watched this documentary, and that amusement park looks bananas. It's basically there's no almost no staff watching people, and kids are just free reign to jump off of walls and drive cars at high speeds and there's multiple deaths happen and it just seems like a nightmare so whenever i hear about someone building a amusement park in like the northeast new england area i think of action park (laughs) yeah the uh that like side plot was just so odd because they didn't even take the time to give us some good like jibber jabber about economic stuff they were just like something 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 housing 100 million dollars and they're all like yes and they like laugh about it yeah it was so over the top (laughs) and i i mean i get the feeling that we're supposed to treat it as uh kind of the threat to paul newman's livelihood like that banker is going to take away his home and he's not going to have anywhere to live because he's renting a room and all this stuff. But I never once was afraid that if Paul, even if Paul Newman got kicked out of his house, like he knows everybody in town, his character and persona would just be like, okay, house next door. Can I rent a room from you? And they'd be like, sure. Yeah, exactly. So even I I was, I didn't really care either way what, what happened with that, which I think was not, what they wanted and so i just was like i don't care about this amusement park unless there's crazy stories of antics kids breaking their legs like <laughs> which that was not the movie this was telling no not at all um yeah i i thought that that whole like side plot just did not work at all for me um one other thing that i kind of wanted to talk about was that when <laughs> when they they, uh, this character who's the the son of the character that Bruce Willis is renting his house from, who is also his 8th grade teacher, so I don't understand how that all worked out. Um, anyways, the in the movie, at one part in the middle, there's like a funeral that happens, and I assumed that it was Clive Jr., this like character that's the, the son of the person that Bruce Willis was renting the house from because um, hit like some sort of real estate deal falls through and he looks very sad and he's like packing up his car and he says like Merry Christmas or good night or whatever to like some driving by mailman mail uh, not mail truck a, uh, a garbage truck and then like one of the next scenes is a funeral scene and so I assumed that it was him that had passed away um, or his mom who was was uh paul newman's caretaker or not like landlord um i thought it was gonna be her because we already had like a health incident there yeah but 
did it say who it was? Was it Clive? No, it was the little lady who, uh, at least from my impression, it was the little lady who kind of wandered out into the street who lived next door. Oh. So I thought that it was Clive. And then the Wikipedia summary says the deal unexpectedly falls through when the promoter turns out to be a con man and Clive quietly skips town in shame. And I thought that that was like a euphemism for him killing himself. And I was like, oh my God, that's so dark. Wow. But that makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's that little lady who lived next door. But that's also not really explained well. I think that might have been... Uh, that might have been something that made more sense in the book. Because maybe their relationship was more, better explained. I also didn't yeah. get that it was a con man. I just thought it was like the the amusement park company was conning him, but I don't know if I would call that a con man because they still built an amusement park. They just picked the town next door. Yeah, I uh, I was I was wholly confused by that. I was more confused by that plot than I was like enlightened as far as the emotional yeah. journey that it was putting anybody else through. So I, I constantly, once those scenes were over, was like, hopefully this doesn't ever come up yeah. on the test later. Block <laughs> this out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. And then it kept coming back, and I was like, what? Now i got to look through my notes and find out what was going on. Yeah. All I remember is $100 million and then laughter. Mm. I'm so lost. At the country club. <laughs> <laughs> Monocles <Yeah>. and martinis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very odd. So, so silly. Also, um, Paul Newman just gets such a good own on that Clive guy um, when he comes into the diner and he's like, mah, 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 mah. you have to leave uh, my my mom's place. Wah, 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 wah. And then um, Paul Newman is like, go take this over to that person while he's like talking mm-hmm. to him. And then this guy like gets sucked into waitering for a table or whatever, waiting on a table. And then he gets so frustrated that he's about to walk out with the ketchup. And then Paul Newman's like... You gotta leave the ketchup behind. Yeah. And then he's like, ah, it was was a good little scene, but yeah, that, I I did not understand how that character's, any of his life made sense. I just knew what he meant for the Paul Newman character. And I was like, what is all this excess? Get this out of here. Um, This is adjacent to Bruce Willis, but throughout the movie, there's like some weird, uh, like jump cuts between scenes where stuff doesn't make any sense. Like it'll be a scene will end and you'll feel like you got a whole complete scene and then it will cut to like a little thing and then another random cut. And then it will be like a whole big complete scene um, where it feels like it was like a whole day's worth or even several days worth of shooting. And it's a whole, a whole thing that's self-contained. And there's one of those sequences where it's like a weird cut and then suddenly um, Paul Newman is at like his regular poker playing table and Bruce Willis is there with a different girl who is nude and Bruce Willis is nude and they're just playing poker and they don't talk about them being nude at all. And I was like, is this a dream sequence? I've been (laughs) burned by North. So I was just like... Is this really happening? And then um, Melanie Griffith runs in and is like, oh my goodness. And then Bruce Willis is all like, there's a perfectly logical explanation for this. And the girl goes, there is? Yeah. Uh, I was 
oh, this has to be a dream. And then it isn't. <laughs> yeah, that was really strange. And they had played poker a few times before and had bet money yeah. and been playing with money. So it was really weird that they'd suddenly decided, well, we're just going to play for our riches. Um, yeah. But I guess they just had to get uh, more tatas in the film. There's like a tata quota. Yeah. That actress, so. that actress we had never seen before, and she's only in it for like thirty seconds, and I don't even know who plays that woman. Yeah, I don't know either. I don't think I she has said, a name or anything in the movie. Yeah, I I have no idea. I was scrolling through the cast, and I was like, I don't know who a lot of these people are because they have like weird names and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's a uh, very 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 silly. Um, yeah, I think that was like the only uh, the only other thing that I wanted to talk about is just that scene was so bizarre. Yeah, yeah, we can move on to the Star Trek connection then. Uh, okay, so we always try to find a Star Trek connection in our movies, and that can be easy, uh, like it was last time. Color of Night was probably like our biggest biggest bang for the buck when it comes to Star Trek connections. This our time was much harder. Yeah, and Brad Dourif. Um, oh right. Um, this this movie was a lot harder, and there was actually I found a couple who, which whose names I didn't pull, but they were song composers, and it's funny because the music they composed, uh, or the elements of the music they composed, goes into scores and soundtracks long after they're dead. There was a guy who died in the he was like born in the 1800s and died in the 60s. And his music made it into both a Star Trek Next Generation episode and this movie. And I was like, wow, how wild is it that someone has like got a very minor credit in things 60, 30, 30 years after uh, you die? That's pretty bananas. But, Josh, you pulled up a couple or one person, right, for this movie? Yeah, I did find one person. I did see those other two people, and I was like, well, I feel like it's weird to take somebody who... <laughs> didn't knowingly contribute to this yeah. film. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the person that I found was a guy named Kim Sans... I'm going to try to pronounce his name correctly, but I'm probably going to mess it up. Uh, Sant'Antonio? That sounds right. Sant'Antonio. Sant'Antonio. Um, and he was a hairstylist on The Next Generation Season 4. He did every episode in Season 4, except for the very first episode and the very last episode. And with those seasons, I think usually the first and the last episode of like one season to the next is usually filmed at the same time. And they're, I think, given like a higher budget because it's like a big cliffhanger episode and stuff like that. So I guess that kind of makes somewhat sense. But season four was the season that he worked on. And then he was also Willis's hairstyle in hairstylist in this movie, which I think is a great transition to our boy. Yeah. So that. That <clears throat> so that brings up one of my first questions. Was Willis wearing a wig in this movie? I think that he was, and if he was, it did not detract from the movie for me. I agree. I I when the movie started and I was like, Well, he's got a full head of hair and I was like, I think he's wearing a wig, but I looked really closely and I couldn't tell. I could not tell. Wig technology can be pretty good. Yeah. Especially if they're, like, really working on it. And this guy, Kim, he is still working today. Um, but he's done a lot of different, like, makeup and hairstylist types of things. So probably an expert in his craft, if I were to guess. Yeah, nice. Um, um, yeah. 
so yeah, just that just that brief aside uh, about his hair. Before we dive into Bruce Willis, though, let's talk about how much money this movie made. Yeah, so this movie was made on a $20 million budget. Um, as I mentioned before, it was kind of a lower budget for how packed everything is, both on screen and behind the scenes. And then it turned out a... million dollars at the box office so it made back um basically double its budget not a huge like big blockbuster movie obviously but it wasn't trying to be if i was to guess this is trying to be a like academy award winning vehicle of a movie and less so of a like let's bring in all the the audience and kind of try to sell the lowest common denominator sort of thing. So I, I feel like the Paramount was probably, probably just fine with the, the reception on this movie. Even if one of the, um, more. I think one of the things that helped this movie's budget was Bruce Willis took a very large pay cut to appear in this movie. Yes. He, at the time this came out, he was making roughly $15 million for his, some of his other big name action movies. Uh, mm. This he took fourteen hundred dollars per week. Yep, and the filming was uh, done in twenty two days for his parts. So I did the math, and he did this movie for a grand total of uh, under four and a half grand for his entire his entire role. Yeah, so quite a quite a difference. Um, that's not i mean i haven't done i haven't looked it up but there's also a lot of times they'll collect residuals on some of the um box office earnings after it or it earns its uh it's money budget back. back and stuff like that so un- unclear if he had any of those in there also um the man this is his fifth movie i think to come out this year in 94 so he's not not hard up for cash in the least so yeah, one of them was Pulp Fiction. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, yeah, he's big, probably good to go. Big moneymaker there. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about Bruce. He, like I said at the top, his role is fairly small. He he's kind of a foil to Paul Newman's character. Um, I I felt like like I mentioned this earlier, and I I think it kind of didn't know the movie kind of didn't know exactly what it wanted to do with a story because there was some of the mo- there's sometimes that I got the feeling that Bruce Willis was almost shown to be a younger Paul Newman analog and there's even there's a line something like you know Bruce Willis says you're 60 something years old and you're still f- have you're still getting crushes on other guys wives I hope I'm not as bad as you when I'm your age and Paul Newman says, well, you're not off to a great start. And Bruce Willis is cheating on his wife with multiple women, even after his wife becomes pregnant and Melanie Griffith. And so that's why um, she leaves him in the end of the movie. So there's a lot of analogs there, but they never really played that up very well. Um, I thought he played a pretty good villain for this movie, as far as a villain can go. Although... Honestly, other than the cheating on his wife, which obviously is terrible, the rest of the stuff he does doesn't ever seem to be that outrageous. And he's always giving Paul Newman's character some grief f- for deserved reasons. 
Um, so if it wasn't for the fact that he's cheating on his wife, I feel like I'd be completely sympathetic with Bruce Willis. Well, he's also like trying to make people work on Thanksgiving and underpaying people and not putting them on the actual payroll so that if they get a workplace injury, it's yeah. But so I thought that was, I got the impression that that was Paul Newman's doing, not Bruce Willis's doing. So oh, yeah. the, the accident Paul Newman has is because he was like doing some work kind of off the books using the construction company's kind of stuff and got hurt. And that's why the court case didn't go his way. Although we're never really clear, but we're also told several times that Bruce Willis's character just had a heart bypass, has a lot of medical debt. And while we're never seen, we're never shown him doing the manual labor involved in a construction company, we are often shown him working. So on the phone or dealing with permitting or getting work or coming up with ideas, he doesn't seem like someone who's skating by and trying to get other people to do his work. Although that's kind of the, that's kind of the feeling I get that we're supposed to think. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I also thought that while they definitely didn't like each other, they still had kind of a friendly relationship and they, they sat on, uh, you know, they, they drank beers together. Um, Paul Newman puts a blanket over Bruce Willis when he sees him sleeping one time. Um, kind of going back to male relationship and processing those, this is definitely another aspect of that where antagonistic, but you still care for each other. Yeah, um, for sure. But yeah, I, I didn't really think of him as a villain, except for the fact that he keeps cheating on his wife. And I'm like, well, I guess this guy's definitely an asshole. Yeah. I, I love his like introduction scene because it's, it's the easiest way to code a character as an asshole is to have them eating while a character that is perceived to be a lesser status is trying to plead their case or trying to talk to them or something important's going on. Like great example of this is um, Barbosa in the Pirates of the Caribbean, Denethor in Lord of the Rings, the return of the King and, and any movie that you're watching, if you're like, Oh, that character is meant to be the asshole. If you see them like eating in front of another person and, just like totally uh not even giving them the time of day they're focused more on their food that's uh that's a pretty good sign that they're meant to be the bad guy or at least the antagonist yeah that scene was pretty good and he's not even eating he's just like eating warmed up food in a tinfoil can or something yeah that that is also the only dream sequence this movie has it uh comes right after that paul newman uh, imagines himself throwing Bruce Willis out the window several times, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I was expecting this movie to have a lot more like asides because yeah. I feel like if you're a movie and you introduce something within the first five minutes and it's a cool concept, you might want to do it more than once, but this movie just did it once and it was fine with that. <laughs> I wish that there was more little imaginative sequences of what, what he would like to do. And then you got to see him be the bigger person but instead you just had to infer everything, which obviously since it's Paul Newman, he makes it easy because he's a great actor. But right. I wish that I wish that they went a little bit deeper on that. Yeah, I um 
I think I might have read the same article that you did. Did you read that LA Times article that came out in like 94, 93? I did, yes. Uh, About how this was not Paul Newman and Willis's first movie together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of funny. Apparently they worked together. Was it on the movie The Verdict? Was that what it was called? Uh, It was... Yep, The Verdict. 1982's The Verdict. Yeah. So Bruce Willis has like a really tiny bit part and Paul Newman plays like a lawyer or attorney or something like that. And um, he was like, oh yeah, we've been in a movie together. And Paul Newman's like, I am so sorry. What was the movie? And then Bruce Willis is like, I'll tell you tomorrow. And then he brings a VHS of it and he like pauses it on the scene that he's in. Like, oh, you were in this movie. (laughs) So that was, that was pretty fun to read. Um, one thing that I really liked reading about was that, um, Bruce Willis, like really, 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 really wanted to do this movie. He wanted to be in a movie with Paul Newman because he's just such a giant as far as, um, film history goes and, uh, obviously an incredible actor. And so there is a quote in there that was from Willis's agent, um, Arnold, Rafkin, and then he said that the actor took smaller roles because they afforded him a chance to work with people he admires, such as Newman, Tarantino, Reiner, and Benton. And I, I do definitely have a lot of respect for Bruce Willis for kind of going out of his way to not just do straight up action movies. Like he tried out a bunch of different things, and even if they aren't all hits, I am glad that he tried them out because I like seeing the variety of movies that he did. And every once in a while you get a movie like this movie that ends up firing on more cylinders than it isn't. And it's a joy to watch. I agree with that. So, Josh, saying all that, how do you think this ranks against the other Bruce Willis films? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It wouldn't be a, uh, (laughs) a, like list of mine without me saying that I agonized over where to put it. <laughs> um, did you did you also agonize over where to put this movie before I tell you where I ended up putting uh, it? No, but I think I hold these sorts of things a little bit looser than you do. I defi- yeah. I'm definitely like, go with the gut. Ah, this goes here. That's more uh, my style. Um, yeah. Whereas I'm like trying to assign everything points values in my head. (laughs) Not really. There was a time when I would have tried to Excel spreadsheet and give this different categories of where I thought a movie would go and then mathematically decide which one I liked the best. Mm. How many movies, how many minutes does Bruce Willis show up in this movie? What's his performance (laughs) like per minute? Yeah. Is this a butt feet or boobs movie? (laughs) Like all of these things weigh into it. Um, this movie's a boobs movie. Um, anyways, <laughs> I I didn't know. <laughs> you're, you're not I did wrong. not know where to. I did not know where to put this movie, and I I knew that it was one of my favorites. Um, I look up at the top, and we've got Pulp Fiction, Die Hard, Hudson Hawk, In Country, and then a big gap, and then we have North. So I knew that it was above North, obviously, and it's kind of similar to In Country in a lot of ways. It's based on a book 
It has kind of a slower pace about a smaller town, and it focuses really specifically in on these characters. And I think that it does all of those things better than in country. And then it was up against Hudson Hawk as it was moving up that list. And even though I think this movie is a better put together film than Hudson Hawk, and even though I gave it a higher Bruce rating, I think I like Josh the person likes Hudson Hawk a little bit more than I like this movie, but it is so, so close. But I am going to put Nobody's Fool in my number four spot right after Hudson Hawk and right before In Country. Uh, well, like I just said, you put a lot more thought into this. Uh, <laughs> I just am like, eh, what do I think about these films? Do I like them more? Do I like them less? Um, so just as, if not more valid than mine. <laughs> I am going to put it number seventh. Number seventh spot. After Die Hard 2 and The Last Boy Scout, but before Death Becomes Her. I guess when I say uh, agonized, um, I did agonize on whether or not I liked Death Becomes Her more or less. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by where we put movies whenever they they really vary a lot. Um, and this is one of those movies where it looks like it did kind of vary. I guess... This is obviously something we could cut out if we needed to, but I have like some pretty distinct gaps in my list. Do you have like any any part where you're like, well, this is this is above this by a lot more than just one movie? Um, Do you have I any think spots on there. Pulp Fiction, Die Hard, and Hudson Hawk to me are kind of head and shoulders above the rest of this list. Yeah, because um, in country, I've in country, I felt really, I really connected with that movie, so. That's yeah. why that's there. Um, I think I really it comes down to what I would watch again, or if if someone is like, I meet them on the street and they're like, "Whoa, you're Kendrick from the Where There's a Will Says Away podcast," and I say, "Yes, how did you know what I looked like?" Because we're not a video cast, and then as long as he's not a creepy person, he'll tell me. But if they, I've, I've, I've when I tell people about this, they ask me. You know what's a what's a surprise movie that's jumped out at you? Um, I'm going to tell them things like Hudson Hawk or In Country or even Death Becomes Her. Um, the movies that didn't get a lot of notice then and today get even less notice. So that's kind of where I stand. I don't think if someone is asking me like, "Hey, what's a great Bruce Bruce, Bruce Willis movie to recommend?" I'm not going to necessarily pull this out but if we're talking Mm. about paul newman possibly oh yeah for sure for sure yeah that's uh great i i love hearing about why why people rate movies where they are because i'm a i'm a big believer in that everybody uh should come to their own conclusions or they should they should kind of figure out what they they like and they don't like and I like hearing about how people come to those conclusions. So oh, thanks for sharing. All right. Well, do you know what time it is, Kendrick? Uh, hold on. Let me check my stopwatch that goes in minutes. It's tick, 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 time for the Wheel of Willis. Oh, my gosh. You are correct. It is time for the Wheel of Willis. 
That's, uh, but the only, I have a clock that only has the Will of Willis or not Will of Willis on it, so. Ah, I see, I see. Um, well, do you know what, um, what we do every time that clock reads Willis time? Uh, I do, Josh. <laughs> we always say the same thing. We do. Every single time. In perfect unison, we say. Unedited, we say. Whisk, whisk that, that wheel. wheel. All right. Has the wheel been whisked? It has been whisked. So the question for today is, should Bruce Willis fire his agent after this movie? Oh, wow. Uh, no. I think that's an uh, easy question to answer. And actually, we don't talk about his agent very in every episode, but it's funny that you brought him up in this uh, <laughs> podcast already, Arnold, Arnold Rifkin, based on that LA Times article. Uh, yeah. Which I don't know if that's still his agent today. Yeah, but. correct. Who who's to say? One of the things that I um, I think you touched on this was like, and we've we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, is how Bruce Willis really spread himself a lot at this point in his career. And yeah, he really think, spread himself, especially in Color of Night. <sighs> okay, folks, if you're still here, <laughs> it, we're, we're closed. <laughs> um. Yeah. He, he artistically. <laughs> he uh, stretched his talents. Man, no matter what I say, it sounds like an innuendo now. Uh, but yeah, he he used his his fame to work with famous people. I guess I think he really wanted to work with Paul Newman, so that's why he chose this movie. So yeah, good on his agent for, for getting sure. him that. For sure. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. No way, no how should he fire his agent after this movie. I mean, he made a, a good movie in the end of it. Like, if Bruce Willis wanted to be in a movie, and it, regardless of how it did, he shouldn't fire his agent for... Well, maybe he should if his agent... If it, he's in, like, something that's atrocious. But, like, this movie ended up being good even. So, yeah, no way he should fire his agent. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to Where There's a Willis, There's a Way. You can follow us at Willis Waypod on Twitter. Email us at WillisWaypod at gmail.com. Find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. I really want people to tweet or email us how they make lists. I think that would be... I'm always curious what kind of... uh, What kind of shenanigans people are getting up to while they're making lists. So, listeners... If you're interested in letting us know how you make lists, uh, email us. You can find me on Twitter at kmartinix. That's K-M-A-R-T-I-N-I-X. And you can find me on Twitter at Joshing Carter. Next time, we are going to be covering Die Hard with a Vengeance. We're returning to the John McClane storyline. I'm excited about this. Curious to see where this goes. Yeah, unlike other movies where we have to be like, well, this movie is a successor to to Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm-hmm. It's actually a successor to This movie Hudson really Hudson. does tie into Hudson Hawk, right? That's where you're going? Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> Hudson Hawkling. Yeah. Hud- the prequel. Hudson Hard. Die Hawk. Okay, that... Uh, I think we've overstayed our welcome. <laughs> I got a couple that don't
<laughs> yeah, it's like, good luck editing this section. <laughs> well, as always, thank you everybody for listening. Have a Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Oh.